Welcome to the Inspired Women Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Hall, psychology student, wife, and mama four. On this podcast, I share helpful life tips and stories from inspirational women. Warning, sometimes we chat about taboo topics and drop some F-bombs. Thank you for tuning in with me today. Enjoy the episode. Hey everyone, just a quick trigger warning. We will be talking about sexual assault in this episode. So please be prepared and enjoy the episode. Okay, bye. Hey everyone, today I'm here with Lauren. Lauren is a seven-time Emmy-nominated and AP award-winning journalist. Throughout her tenure as a television broadcaster, she worked as a sports anchor and reporter for the ABC affiliate in, in Cleveland the CBS affiliate in Buffalo, and the MSG Varsity in New York metropolitan area. Also, she has written features for several nationally known outlets, including MBA.com, WNBA.com, NikeWomen.com, ESPN's Girl Mag, and Women'sProSoccer.com. In 2019, she combined her skills as a writer and television journalist to create The Unsealed. She ghost writes all the features, the featured letters, provide commentaries, and hosts a weekly interactive show called Unsealed Conversations. Where is that that show located, Lauren? So it's like an interactive show. Sometimes I post um, the raw to the website, but it's only for people who are subscribed that can actually access it. But it's like a show that I um, where everyone could talk and interact. So like I invite the people who are paying members of my company to actually be part of the show and and be part of the interview and conversation. Great. I'm pretty sure I have your website. So I'll definitely link that up. So people, if they want to get a hold of you and participate, then they can sign up for that. So, um, people magazine, ESPN, ABC, the New York post and E online are among the outlets that have now acknowledged the unsealed work. In her first year, the unsealed reached more than a quarter million people in 182 countries. At Columbia University, Lauren majored in sociology, focused her studies on the impact of sports on society. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Uh, So when you applied, you mentioned a very serious thing that happened to you that happens to a lot of women, far more women than we really want to acknowledge it happens to. Um, so I'd love for you, cause that's the, that's was really the, um, catalyst for the unsealed. Am I correct yeah. in that? So yeah. I'd love for you to share a little bit, not the gory details, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. the, the overview, if you're comfortable with that. Yeah, sure. So when I was 16 years old, I went to a party and unfortunately I accepted a drink from strangers and I was drugged and sexually assaulted by two strangers. And it was something that was so shocking. My brain couldn't even process at the time Mm -hmm. that I didn't talk about it for nine years. And I, it manifested in other ways. It manifested in fear. Um, I was a really good athlete and was being recruited to play division one soccer, but then I lost 30 pounds, all basically muscle. And I became too weak to play the sport that I loved. Um, And when I started working in sports, I kind of just shifted my focus from being an athlete to, okay, well now I'm going to be a sportscaster. And I started working in sports. And what I didn't realize at the time was that was my path to healing. And I started telling all these stories about different athletes who've overcome tremendous amounts of adversity. And over time, 
as I started to get further and further away from my assault, the memories were coming back stronger and stronger. It was becoming more and more in the forefront of my brain. It was almost like, okay, now you can cope with this. So as my brain started to really um, acknowledge what happened, I started to have this urge to talk about it. So my mid twenties, I told my, my family and my friends, but that didn't seem to be enough. It just kept echoing in my head. And then in, I think it was 2016, I met this girl named Gab Cruz. She is a sportscaster in, in Cleveland, Ohio, and one of the most amazing humans on the planet. She's a really good friend now, but she and I started talking. We were at a Cavaliers game and anytime there's a female in sports at a game or anything, I always would go up to them because there were so few of us. I always felt like right. we needed a band together. Like, <laughs> who are you? Who are you working for? Like, like, what are you doing? Be my friend. And so we started talking and in this first game that we met each other, she, I ended up following her on Twitter. And then I noticed that she had something called Love Doesn't Shove, a nonprofit in her bio. And I was like, oh, what is this? And she was like, oh, I run a nonprofit. Unfortunately, when I was in college, I was in an abusive relationship. So I go to high schools now and talk to teenagers about dating violence. And I was like, we got to do a story on this for ABC. Like you got to do an interview. And she was like, no, like, no, no, no. And no, she's like, I don't want him to see the interview. I don't want his parents to see it. I don't want my parents to see it. No. And I was like, all right, well, we can still be friends. <laughs> you know, all right. And then she called me like, I think it was like three months later. And she was like, hey, Lauren, are you still interested in sharing my story? And I said, of course, and we did an interview and she was emotional and transparent and so vulnerable. Her interview was so powerful that it was the talk of Cleveland for weeks. It got a ridiculous amount of hits. And so after, after we aired this interview, I called her and I said, oh, actually we went to lunch and I said, what made you change your mind? How did you go from being so against sharing your story to being so transparent and so honest and just so real. And she said, Lauren, I realized that it's the silence of victims that allow predators to continue their predatory behavior. Mm-hmm. So there I was asking her to tell her story. Well, I remained quiet about my own. So it was in that moment that I was like, that's it. Like, I got to speak up. Like, I got to tell people what happened to me, not just my parents, not just my friends. I really need to put this out there. And then it was just a matter of how, because I'm working for a television station. They kind of own my image. There's nothing I can really do publicly without their consent. But a few months after that, I ended up connecting with Cheryl Sandberg, mm-hmm. who is, I think she's the COO of Facebook. I think so. Yeah. I have her, I have her book actually. So yeah, lean in. And I, so this was when she was writing her second book, option B. So lean in was her first book about women leaning in, in the workplace and option B was about overcoming adversity after her husband died. So she had just written option B and she was looking to promote option B and she created a corresponding website with filled with stories of people who overcome adversity. And we had a mutual friend and he told her my story and we connected and she asked me to share my story in option B. And I couldn't say no to Cheryl Sandberg and also right. an excuse to ask my boss, like, Hey, Cheryl Sandberg just asked me to do this. Like, what'd you think? And he was like, uh. but, um, but she had a lot of parameters. Like it was like only a certain amount of words and she had a ghostwriter and I was a writer. And it was like my first time coming out with this story. So I really wanted to say it in my own words and write exactly what I wanted to write. But she kind of gave me an excuse to, to open that, you know, open that idea up and ask my boss. And so I said to my boss, Cheryl Sandberg, I'm going to do it with her, but I want to also do it my own way. And in my own words, with my own writing, I want to say exactly what I want to say if I'm going to come out there. And so my boss agreed. And I was started writing and I ended up deciding to write an open letter 
because I'm not like the most emotional person on normal circumstances. So it was hard for me to just sit down and write about myself. Like, here's my story, like blah, blah, blah. And I didn't want it to be a sob story. So right. writing an open letter to other stuff, I ended up writing an open letter to other sexual assault survivors. And so writing an open letter allowed me to dig a little deeper, right? Like it allowed me to, like, this isn't just about me. I'm actually sending a message to people who could have, who, who have, who my story could have value to, who can learn from my experiences. So it was meant to be something that was empowering for other women or what I learned after the letter, men too. There's a lot of men who go through sexual assault or sexual abuse. So yeah, I wrote this letter and it went viral around the country and it ended up being the top story on our station's website for an entire week. So like news is going on in Cleveland and everyone's reading about what happened to me when I was 16 years old. And then I wrote a few other letters and uh, not letters, a few other pieces, stories in first person. And all of them kept going viral. I wrote a piece about my hair being curly and I ended up on CNN. So I was like pretty good at this whole writing thing. (laughs) What if I could lend my writing ability to other people's stories and give them the same voice that I was able to give myself and empower their stories to help other people the way I was able to empower my story to help other people. And so the idea was to basically tell stories in the form of open letters. The same thing I was doing as a reporter where I told it in the form of packages in third person. Now I just kind of transitioned that into telling people's own stories in first person and just using their words to write their stories. So I, I take their words, I organize it, and I just put it together in a cohesive way that's clear and, and well-written. And I, I just lend my writing ability to other people's voices. And so we've done stories about all different circumstances, whether it be racism, transgender, um, trans- challenges with being transgender or um, mental health. I mean, we've, we've addressed so many topics, women's empowerment, athletes overcoming adversity there's so many and I don't think there's a person who could go on my site and wouldn't be able to find one letter that relates to them I think they all relate to everyone we can all learn from each other's lessons but um yeah so that's how I started it it all came from this letter that I wrote and realizing how powerful it was for me to share this letter I mean it was so liberating I cried when I like published it on Twitter like and and I saw people sharing it I'm like oh my god everyone's reading it (laughs) and I was holding it in for so long and and, you know especially at 16 when something like that happens you're like like what people are going to think this of me or that like it was what people would think was more important than even me facing what happened like I was just like let's this away because I don't want this type of attention. I didn't want that type of attention. I didn't want attention as a victim. I didn't want attention as people even talking about something that happened to my body. Like that just made me uncomfortable. I didn't want the attention. I didn't want that type of attention. And I think because I, I didn't tell it the story until 15 years after my assault, I think it also, as a society, we've matured. Um, this was before the Me Too movement, but I think yeah. as I matured and, and was less worried about like what people would think and people would say, I think as a society, we've become more and more um, compassionate to sexual assault. Um, I didn't even have the words to define what happened when I was 16. I, I, you know, by, legal, by federal definition, I was raped. By state definition at that time, I was sexually assaulted. By state definition at this time, 
I was right. So like there, there's not even consistent language and there's different language from state to state. And the difference in the de de definition is basically, you know, federal government says any type of penetration is rape. Well, some states say, no, not any time, type of penetration is rape, only what we think of as conventional sex is, is rape. So not, not even to have the clear words to define what happened is, is makes it difficult too. Yeah. And I don't ever remember having a conversation in school or anyone else anywhere else about rape being drugged or, I mean, I, I always thought of rape of like someone holding a knife to you, pulling you up in an alley and, and raping you like that. Like I never right. really thought about at a party as a drug, you're drugged and you're just very, I was extremely sedated and I just couldn't process what happened. And I think there's a lot more conversations going on now. I mean, I published this letter um, April of 2017 and Me Too happened I think September of end of September, 2017. So I think that as a society, we were leading up to that. Like the Me Too movement was like something that was in the making and more and more people like me were coming out and speaking out. And there was more and more compassion for sexual assault survivors than there was, I think 10, 20 years prior. Right. I was, uh, the first time I was sexually assaulted was at 15. Uh, the second time I was drugged in college, like at a bar Sorry. and I just, I don't even know what happened. I woke up in the hospital and I was just like, Oh my goodness. I'm yeah. So sorry. It was, it was wild. Cause I'm like, the hospital was like, Oh, you were drunk and you were brought here. And I was like, this what? what's going on? Like the bruises and stuff that doesn't align with the story you're trying to tell me like, but they never performed a rape kit. They never did anything wow. like that. So it was just, it was insane. And I, I mean, this was in 2007 to like 2006, yeah. 2007. So it was a long, that's a long time college. ago. Yeah. I mean, yeah. and that's the same, same generation. And it, it, it was, there was a different, I think that, I think there was a different mentality and there was a different mm -hmm. approach to sexual assault. It was like, let's just push it away. Right. It was something. That, and that's, so that's what I did, but I think that was really common. It was a I think it was very, I mean, there was a sexual assault. There was a guy that was accused, accused of raping three women on our campus and all three women had basically the same story. And all these guys were like, I don't believe it unless I saw it. I'm like, well, if you saw it, you're an accomplice and you're, I should be in jail too. Right. So like it, there was such a, a, a lack of wanting to like accept the reality of sexual assault. And like someone can be a star football player and your best friend or your cousin, and they can rape someone too. Like yeah. it, people aren't all of one thing and people can be really great in one aspect and then do a terrible thing in another aspect. And the other thing I realized is, you know, I didn't tell a lot of people at first, but then when I did start it, when I told my parents and I, I would tell like one friend here and I tell another friend there. And all of a sudden I realized my secret, like everyone had the same secret. You had the same secret. Like yep. we all were, everyone had the same secret. And, you know, for me, it felt like a skeleton in my closet. And when I realized this ain't my skeleton, I did nothing wrong. It's the skeleton of the person who assaulted me. So when I spoke up, it was like, let me give this back to its rightful owner. Like, I'm not going to live in shame. I'm not going to live hiding because I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I guess I shouldn't have been drinking at 16, but that's uh, I who mean, wasn't drinking at that, I mean, let's be honest. That, that, that doesn't mean that I was, I should have been right. Right. You know, or I should have been assaulted or sexually assaulted, however you want to define what happened to me. But, um, but yeah, so it wasn't my skeleton. And I thought it was really important that we 
that I put it back out there so that I could give it back to its rightful owner. Like, Hey, here, this is on, on whoever did this to me. And to this day, I don't know who did it to me. I, I don't know. So that's also something that was a tough pill to swallow. The fact that I will, I will probably never know who did this to me. Right. But my second time, I'll never know who did it to me. Yeah. And that's oh. like, you just like wonder, right? Like literally okay. if I was in an elevator and they were there, I'd probably be like, Hey, have a good day. Nice to meet you. <laughs> And no, have no idea. idea. No yeah. Idea. I mean, it could have been somebody I know I knew and I, I wouldn't have known. And they say, usually it happens by somebody, you know, or like somebody that other people know, right. You said you were at a party. So this was people that you yeah. may not have known, but other Some, people, you somebody know, somebody had, to, I mean, so I went to a private school or for two years, I went to a private school. And so there were kids from all over the area. So it's so easy. Could have easily could have been just like, one kid told kids from his town that like, Hey, I'm going to a party here. And then they told another person and kids showed up and they had no connection to our school or they had, it just, it just took one person to tell somebody that, and like right. nobody else would know that those, that group of people, because everybody was from a different town. Like kids were from gotcha. all over a pretty, like probably a 30, 45 mile radius. There were kids coming from my, going to my school. And so it could, it just could have been any, they could have, they could have connected to the party through so many different ways that it's so hard to like pinpoint. Yeah. I I mean, it's, you know, like you said, this is not an unusual conversation. Once you start talking to other women, they all, almost every woman I know has either been a story. Yeah. Been sexually assaulted or sexually harassed or like in some way, shape or form have been violated um, by men predominantly. Um, and so, and and like you said, even men, men have dealt with Well, When I started talking about this, I received so many stories from men. And so I don't ever want to discount their experiences or their stories because I I realize it's not something we talk about. I think the status is like one in three boys are molested. It's very high. I don't want to say that number. It's not positive, but I've heard so many stories from men who were molested by their babysitters or family member. So I don't want to discount that in any way. It's an experience that I think both genders face and it's a problem and it needs to be acknowledged both ways. And it's, it, it, you know, like my friend is like, once asked me like, am I going to be accused of sexual assault? Like I'm afraid to ask after the Me Too movement, I'm afraid to like ask a girl out. I'm like, no, no, no. Like the reason you've never been accused of sexual assault because, because you don't assault people. Like it's, usually the same guys do it over and over and over. And that's why it's so prevalent is because one person you can assault literally 40 people and never be held accountable. And now 40 more women have this experience. But if you're a good guy doing the right thing, you're not going to be accused in all likelihood. The, the, the rate of false reports is actually very low. Yeah. Very, very low. So I, I'm, like, I'm like, don't worry. I'm like, the reason it's so prevalent, it's the same guys that do it over and over and over and over. And there's just so little accountability. And and that's where the problem lies. But I speak at high schools and I talk to a lot of these kids and it just seems like the next generation is a lot more aware. And there's a lot more conversations. And that gives me a lot of hope because I think hopefully the, the numbers will go down. I think right now, you know, the statistic is one in four college students, girls will be sexually assaulted during their time. I, that, that's crazy. Like, I don't want to tell a little girl, like, that's your chances of 
one day being sexually right. assaulted. I think for rape overall, it's like one in six in, in, a, in their lifetime. That's crazy. I mean, that's just not something that I want for young children, for girls to grow up and have to experience. It shouldn't be like a rite of passage to be sexually assaulted. So I'm hoping that just what I'm seeing in these schools and these, these men and women who are so attentive or young girls and boys who are so attentive to like my speech and to what I have to say. And they ask so many questions. I hope that really resonates with them. And they're just really cautious about how they move forward in life and really respectful of one another. I Gen Z gives me like so much hope because (laughs) I feel like they're the most progressive generation that come has come. And I'm not saying all of them are progressive. There's a lot of them that still have very conservative values because they were brought up in households that were like that and like have some very um, bigoted beliefs and misogynistic beliefs. But for the most part, majority of Gen Z are so open-minded, so progressive, so like aware. It's amazing. they're talking about things and, and, and living things that I'd never even heard of growing up. I mean, I did a story on a, on a person who identifies as gender fluid. And I was like, you gotta excuse me. Like I'm, I'm getting old. Like what is gender fluid? And, and, um, sorry, it gets confusing. This person goes by there, not he or she. So sometimes when I refer to there, I get confused because of how my brain typically operates, but there said to me that, you know, I'll explain to you. I just, someday I wake up, I want to be a boy. Some days I wake up and I want to be a girl. I'm like, cool. <laughs> like, I'm like, I got it. But no, I didn't know anyone gender fluid growing up. It was hard enough for people to come out as, as gay or bisexual. Right. I don't think I even knew anybody that was trans when I was growing up that I can think of. Um, it just wasn't as acceptable. Acceptable. Yeah. I don't think it was as safe to come out as those, as those things, which is unfortunate. Right. You want everyone to be comfortable with who they are and be able to be who they are. So I'm learning from the next generation Same. and they, and thankfully they're patient with me. Yeah. Well, one of my nibblings, so nibbling is the non-binary term for niece or nephew. Okay. Um, I learned that because my nibbling came out to me as non-binary, which not oh. non-binary is kind of like gender fluid, like, but non-binary, they explained to me is more like they don't identify with uh, like either yeah. gender. Um, and so I'm learning these things as we go too, because like, I knew non-binary was a thing, but I didn't yeah. know like all of these and I'm learning, I'm learning because yeah you know, people I love and care for are trans and non-binary. And what if one of my kids like grows up and comes out as trans or non-binary? Whether I have kids or not that have, that identify in that way, I just think everyone deserves to be, feel safe and, and loved and being who they are. Exactly. I want to be loved and, and feel safe for who I am and for who I love. I don't want, I want people to accept who I love and I want people to accept me for me. So why wouldn't I extend that to somebody else? And so that's, that's something that's really important to me. And that's part of the unsealed is creating, letting people tell their stories so you can see the humanity in them. Yeah. You can see at the end of the day, we're all just humans living this human experience. And when you see that we're all more alike than we are different, you can have compassion for our differences. You know, I've done a lot of stories about, you know, racism. And obviously I'm a 
white woman. And there's a lot of privilege that comes with that. And I realized that even though I have compassion, there's a lot of things that I just don't realize because I don't live that experience. Exactly. And it really takes me listening to be like, oh, okay. Like I remember I was doing a story with uh, Thomas Q. Jones. We did a letter to black, the black and white youth of America. Let's get real about race. And we did this actually before George Floyd. We did it in like October, 2019. And we're, I'm talking to him about the story and we're talking about police and he said something to the effect of like, you know, if, if someone comes and robs his house, he doesn't call the police. I'm like, wait, 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 you can't call the police. If someone comes and texts you and he was like, no, cause they're going to look at the big muscular black man and arrest me. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I was like, whoa. Cause like, for me, it's like instinctive, like somebody help me 911. Like right. someone's here. And it was, it was like, I should have been more aware. Like I couldn't, be, when I said it out loud and he was like, no, I was like, oh, like, obviously not because I, I, it was, it was so obvious once I realized that I was so ignorant, if that makes sense. Like once you yeah. pointed it out, I was like, well, that makes sense. But because that's not my experience, I, you sometimes have blinders on and don't realize it until someone says it to you. And yeah. so that's why people sharing their stories and their experiences is so much, so important because we're all ignorant to our, each other's experiences. Just like, you know, we, as women, like I always tell the guys I date, like a lot of times they're like six foot three big men and, and <laughs> they don't understand why they, they don't, they don't get scared walking alone at night right. in the dark. They just don't. And so they don't understand my experience, but if I'm like, Hey, I get scared. Can you walk me to my car? They can say, sure. Yeah. So even if they don't fully understand my experience, they can help me with my experience. And I think that's the same thing with racism or transgender, even though we don't necessarily live each other's experiences, we can have compassion and we can have, and listen to each other. And if someone says, Hey, this is how you can help. Well then help that way. Yeah. Someone says, Just do this. Okay. Like I think listening to each other, hearing each other's stories are so important and it gives you, it gives you the light that you may not see. And then it'll, it allows you to be compassionate and, and really see the humanity in every single situation, not what makes you different. No, exactly. I found the biggest part of my education because I grew up, I didn't realize I grew up in a bigoted household, um, until I married my husband and moved to Virginia. I'm from like a very rural part of upstate New York. So okay. <laughs> yeah, very like white, <laughs> very like cisgendered head or like, you know, heterosexual, yeah. like pretty bigoted now that I realized it, but I didn't realize <laughs> it like growing up. Like, that's all I, you knew. Yeah. I didn't know that the jokes my parents would make were actually very offensive. And, and as somebody with a mental illness, now I look back and I'm like, the jokes they made about people with a mental illness is very offensive. Yeah. Um, and I moved to Virginia and I remember, I don't even remember what I said to my husband. I made like some kind of like very offensive joke. And he was like, that's not funny. And I was like, what do you mean? That's not funny. And he was like, that's not funny. Yeah, it just kind of made me step back. And um, we've been married 10 years for the last 10 years. I I've been listening to people, like you said, and educating myself. Like, I I think the most powerful thing is listening to the experiences of other people. And when you're talking about, um, you know, what you do, I was like, that's what we do here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's so important to listen. And it just, when you really listen to other people, you're compassionate and you can actually help. And sometimes, sometimes it's just helping, just being willing to listen, just to let people know that you care and that you 
want to learn about their experience and, and everyone's experiences have their own nuances and their own um, feelings and emotions that are attached to it. And just listening to people makes them feel heard and, and makes them feel respected. And, and it's the same thing you want for yourself. When you tell your story, you want people to listen and hear you and, and know that your experience matters. And when I talk to these kids at these schools and they ask questions at the end, I know that they're listening and I know that, right. that they were respecting what I had to say and that that matters. And, and I don't need them to be like, you changed my whole life. Right. Just to know that, uh, although some of them do say that, it's very sweet. <laughs> I do like that too, but um, but I don't need that. I just, just knowing that they're listening, I think is, is really powerful in and of itself. Um, but it was interesting because I always say like, I grew up in a household where we didn't talk about race at all. Like at all, I never heard a racist joke. I never heard, you know, my parents had friends of different races and I never heard them like refer to anybody by their race. I had friends of different races. I never heard them refer to my friends by their race. It was never, it was, it just was never acknowledged in any way. And I didn't learn about racism until my friends taught me and I saw it through their experiences. And then I was confused. And I'm, I remember I, my boyfriend, my freshman year of college was black. And somebody asked me to come on a radio show and talk about interracial dating. And I was like, why? <laughs> like, I didn't understand. <laughs> I'm like, I don't get it. Like to me, dating someone black was the same thing as dating someone with blonde hair. I have brown hair, you have blonde hair. We look different, but like, right. you're hot, I'm cute. Like we still work, right? <laughs> <laughs> So that was to me, that's how I saw race at the time. I didn't realize like the, the societal significance, the cultural significance. I didn't realize any of it. So like, I was like, he's cute. I'm cute. Like we work, you know? <laughs> so I went on and I called my dad. I'm like, dad, like, why do they want me to talk about this? Like, I don't understand. And he was like, well, you know, some people are like, you know, like he's trying to like, say like some, some people that are very much the minority that like are a little bit more, um, Close-minded. Close-minded. Yeah. And he like really sugarcoated it really nicely. And so like, as an adult, I finally asked him when I like figured out this is a really racist world. I'm like, why did you ever tell me? He's like, well, I didn't really want to tell you about murder either. So (laughs) I was trying to protect you, but I realized there's even privilege in that. Right. So like my parents didn't have to talk to me about racism. Whereas if you're a parent of children who are black, you have to tell them to protect them. You have to tell them like, you're not as safe when you get pulled over or when you go to the store or anything you do, you're more at risk for being accused of something. And and so even in my parents attempt to protect me and to live in this like utopia, there, there was a lot of privilege in that. And then I I go into the world completely clueless. Like, I'm like, what's going on here? (laughs) Yeah. I had like the opposite Uh, well, not really opposite, but my parents didn't talk about racism either, but they would make comments about black people and brown people. And my dad, my dad and mom never came out and blatantly said I couldn't date a black person or a brown person, but they made it known in other ways. Like it was not except just like it wasn't acceptable to them for me to be a lesbian. Like that wouldn't have been okay. The same way they never came out and said, you can't date girls but they made it known in other like little comments, little things they said and how, you know, they felt about certain things or like people we knew who had interracial like relationships, they would make comments about it. They made it known that that was not acceptable. So they didn't talk about racism, 
but now looking back I'm like y'all had some racist views. yeah it's like they didn't they didn't overtly talk about it but they they did reference it comment and it make and make their opinions known I mean my parents just I mean they're just I think they're very liberal they're very open-minded um I think you know my I'm Jewish we have a background of the holocaust and and mm-hmm. I think that um there was there's some compassion for being oppressed yeah being Jewish I think there's some understanding of like hey this world needs love not oppression um having that background and I don't know I think my my dad grew up in the Bronx my mom grew up in Queens so they grew up in diverse neighborhoods so I think that my parents are just a little bit more progressive and very open-minded and I think my grandparents were like that too. I know my dad used to tell me this story because he used to tell, like to tell me his stories about my grandfather beating people up. <laughs> <laughs> and he told me this story about how like somebody came, my grandfather owned a gas station, how someone came to the grass gas station and called my grandfather a derogatory term for a Hispanic person. Cause my grandfather was very dark and looked Hispanic. He wasn't Hispanic, but my grandfather like, beat the crap out of this guy. <laughs> and, and my dad goes to him, like, why'd you, why'd you beat him up? And he goes, he called me as such and such. And he's like, why do you care? You're not Hispanic. He goes, he doesn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> and he, then he told my dad wrong is wrong. Like, right. I mean, he shouldn't be beating people up, but that's how my grandfather handled things. But, um, but he, it, whether you were being derogatory towards someone who was Jewish or someone who was Hispanic or someone who was black, it was all wrong to my grandfather. And that was the message he sent to my dad. And so I think that we, I think I came from a very progressive family from at least my grandparents' generation down. I don't really know a lot about my great grandparents, but even my grandmother on my mom's side was very progressive and, and very, um, she was kind of ahead of her time. Like she was used to read Ms. Magazine and very into women's <laughs> empowerment and very into women being like independent and being able to be educated and, and make their own money. So I kind of had these progressive grandparents. And then I had these two parents that were like, yeah, like do it, be you, like love people, love whoever. And then they also just never really told me about all the crappy, like hate in the world. And so I just didn't know. I mean, my parents had a diverse group of friends that, I mean, I remember there was a woman who was a person of color who was close to my parents. And my mom always used to just refer to her as superwoman because she, she like had like five kids and she was like always doing like charity work. And then she would adopt another kid that had like, um, you know, an illness and and she just did so much and she was so accomplished and she was so hardworking that, that the only thing I ever hired to call her is superwoman. So these are very subtle things as a child, but that's what I associated this woman um, who my mom was friends with as a superwoman. It wasn't her Hispanic friend. It wasn't her, you know, it wasn't her friend, a color friend. Like that's not how she referenced her. She referenced her as, you know, Martha, the superwoman. (laughs) So I think that like the way my parents um, raised me and the way they interacted with other people made me really believe and, and made me first not understand hate but then make me really um, adverse to hate because I grew up with so much love and, and loving everybody and believing in loving everyone and, and being confused how everyone could not love everybody. So right. for me, like even, even this last year, there's, I'm always learning more and more about racism and hate. And it's, um, you know, I'm constantly listening and learning. And I don't think, I don't think you can ever fully understand someone else's experience. Like, I don't think I'll ever fully be like, okay, I understand racism. I know what right. it's about. Like, 
it's constantly learning, constantly listening, constantly reading, and, and also understanding that not every single person who's a person of color or every single person who's gay or every single woman has the same experience or the same feeling. Right. Like everyone has individual experiences and feelings. So you, you have to listen to each person and, and just do what's best for that person. And, and if they're your friend or, or family member or whatever it is. No, I, I completely agree. And I like how you mentioned in the last year, because I feel like because of the pandemic, so many people are at home, so many people are online more. And so you're seeing these parts of people that are horrifying. Like I have had to delete well over a hundred people yeah. off my social media people. I've known my entire life. Some of them, because I did not know they seem like uh, I said this to my sister. I'm like, when you see them on the street or you run into them at, at a store, they seem like very kind, nice people. Yep. And then you on uh, online, you see these sides of them that you're like, I don't want anything to do with you. Like you're a horrible human being. Like, how could you think these things about other people or about me? I had one guy I went to high school with and I've, I've known, well, I've known since I was like five and he commented on several of my posts and said some very horrible things about me because I disagreed with him. And I'm like, if you feel that way about me, please remove yourself from my friends list. And he didn't. So I removed him. I'm <laughs> like, no, I'm not playing this yeah. game. Like in the last year, we've seen such horrifying people, sides of people. Yeah. I mean, I had someone who like, you ever have someone like write something really mean, but in a really nice way. Yes. <laughs> Yeah. And you're like, like, what just happened there? Like, I'm so good. Like, were they being nice? Or they, and so this guy who like, I babysat his kids growing up. I had no idea his, his political views or anything, but like wrote me this really nice email basically saying, or message on Facebook, you know, you don't have to apologize for your privilege. Like you don't have to speak up for anybody else. Like just enjoy, enjoy the life that you have and like keep moving, basically shut up. Right. Shut up. Stop talking about Black Lives Matter. Stop talking about equality. Stop talking about anything that, you know, doesn't directly impact you. But I think it all impacts us. But he, he basically was like, you enjoy your life and just focus on your life and, and don't worry about like everything else going on in the world. And I was just like, no, like, no, that's not right. how it works. And, and you know, I, I was, this is another ignorant thing that I thought, you know, I thought because you know, I mentioned before I'm Jewish and I, and Jews have the history of the Holocaust and being oppressed right. for generations and generations. I thought Jews would be in general, more compassionate about, um, black lives matter. And there was a lot of people that I grew up with and that I knew that, that weren't compassionate. And then, and that didn't have the same views that I did. And it was really shocking to me and hurtful. I mean, there's, you know, when you have, have, right is right and wrong is wrong. So yeah, you, you speak up because it's the right thing. But then I think there's another layer when you know that, that when people are saying these things, it's hurting people that you love. Like, mm-hmm. You know, my friends are hurt when someone says like black lives doesn't matter. Right. That's right. hurtful to people that have these experiences and that live racism every day of their lives. And so when you see people that, you know, and that you were friends with or, or that you spent time with, or you went on vacations with writing all this stuff, that's hurtful to some other people that you love. It's shocking. And then you all also feel like, how did I not know this? Right. How did I embrace this person? And how did I have relationships with these person, this person all these years and not know the hate that was in the heart that not know that they were the people causing problems for other people that I love. And exactly. it was, it was a time of like where people just showed their true colors and it was, 
same thing. It's like, you just kind of decide like, okay, these are people that I don't want in my life. Cause I don't want to be, I don't want to encourage this. I don't want to be part of this. I don't want to ignore this. And, and it was definitely, um, it was definitely an eye-opening year. And it was also at times a discouraging year to realize how, how far we still have, have to go with creating a more equal, more compassionate, more loving world. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I couldn't have said it better myself because, you know, all I can think is like, I have friends and family that are black and brown, more like friends that are black and brown. My family's pretty white, Uh, (laughs) but I have friends and family who are trans or non-binary. I have friends or family that are gay. I have, you know, I have friends and family that are in all of these marginalized communities. And I get so upset when people are saying these things about them. And like, you never know what the tipping point is going to be for these people to just spew their hate and spew their bigotry. And I always try to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm, I'm like, maybe I misunderstood this post or this comment. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe they didn't mean what in the manner that I took it. And so I always comment from that place. Like, you know, um, Hey, you know, I think maybe you missed what this means here's what it is. And I had one girl go, I had made a video when black lives matter, like in the summer. And I said, um, it was about like me unlearning the racist views that I grew up with and you know, what those racist views were and the things my parents would say. And I had one girl I've known since I was a teenager and I commented on her, her big rant about white privilege and how it's not a thing. And I was like, Hey, here's a link. Like this really explains it. Well, I found for myself, like to help me understand, you know, maybe it'll help you understand. And she was just like, not all of us have a racist past like you, Megan, not all of us. (laughs) Yeah. Not all of us are having this come to Jesus moment about how they're racist. Some of us have no problem with racism. I'm like, did you not read your own post? Yeah. I, I, I mean, they, I, they say that like the new form of racism is to say racism doesn't exist. Yeah. Not acknowledge what's really going on. Cause if you don't acknowledge it, you don't have to change it. Right. Right. If you don't, it all comes back. I mean, when I, so when I did my thing about sexual assault, one of the things I once wrote is, you know, when those guys assaulted me, they didn't see a, kid who was tutoring her friends. They didn't see a daughter who was loving to her parents. They didn't see an athlete who was hustling every day to get better. They just saw a girl in the skirt that was willing to take a drink. They didn't, they didn't see the humanity in me. Mm-hmm. And so when we tell our stories, whether it be from a woman's perspective, from somebody who's um, LGBTQ plus community or somebody who's a different race than us, it allows us to see the humanity in us all because there is humanity in us and all. And that's what connects us all that we're all humans living this human experience. We all love, we all hurt. We all, um, you know, want to be feel accepted and, and we all want kindness and it's all very similar in terms of like the human emotions, we may experience, have different experiences that create these different emotions, but whether you're black or white, you know what it's like to feel left out. You know what it's like to be ostracized at some point in your life. So when you listen to other people, you can start to have that compassion, even if you didn't have that experience. And then you start to be more understanding. And that's how we begin to unite. Even if we do live different experiences, we can start to see like, hey, we, we have 
a similar human experience. We have a we we are all we all have similar emotions, and we all need to care about each other and just be kind and considerate, just like we want people to be kind and considerate of our own experiences and our own our own lives. And we're all looking through the world through our own lens, right. and. It, we just need to constantly try to expand our lens and understand that, you know, I'm living my life as a, as a white woman. And that means people are going to act a certain way toward me. And I, you need to understand this. That's part of it because because of the shell you walk in. Right. So like you have to understand that that's not the way everyone reacts to everyone and be compassionate to that and be thoughtful of that and be, and care because we all got to care about each other. You know, what's the point if we just care about ourselves? No, exactly. And I'm going to school for psychology. And I loved how you talked about uh, humanizing people with the stories that you're sharing, because one of the things psychology teaches us is people will dehumanize others in order to be able to stay in the place that they are. Yeah. Yeah, You can treat someone poorly if you don't see them to be like you or don't see them as a human. It's a lot, it's a a lot easier to dehumanize or to sexually assault a woman who you're like, oh, that's just some, you know, that I don't like the words that derogatory words that people use for women, but that's what their thought process is. Oh, that's just some whatever in a skirt. And that dehumanizes them. That's, I'm not a daughter. I'm not a sister. I'm not a, I'm not a student. I'm not a friend. I'm a a girl in a skirt. Right. So that makes it easier to, to treat someone poorly and and not treat them with respect. And so I think, yeah, humanizing people is, is critical in, in, encouraging people to treat each other with respect and kindness. So as we wrap up the podcast today, Lauren, what is something that you would like to leave the inspired women audience with? Um, I would like to leave them with so many things. Uh, (laughs) What would I like to leave people with? Just never be afraid to be who you are. Never be afraid to speak up. Um, your voice matters. And, um, when you, when you are true to yourself, I think you attract the right people and you invite the right people in your life. And anyone who doesn't accept you, you don't want as part of your life anyway. So always be true to yourself, be true to your story, because the, I think the greatest power we have in our lives is our truth. Yeah. You know, I always say like, um, the only thing more powerful than the powerful is the truth, which is why like super powerful people try to get people to sign NDAs. Right. The truth is, is very powerful. So believe in your truth, be proud of your truth, be proud of what you've overcome and then share your wisdom and your knowledge with others. I would say your truth can change the world. No, I love that because, um, I'm going to link up all your, your links in the show notes that -hmm. you provide. So people can connect with you Um, because like you said, stories are powerful And, um, I'm sure that you are featuring stories that maybe haven't been featured on my podcast and, you know, learning from other people and learning what they've been through is, is better than picking up a book. Right. (laughs) I mean, all, all have value, but, but yeah, I mean, talking to people and learning people, it just, it just opens your heart up. It opens your mind up and it makes you think about things that you haven't thought about ever. Cause I mean, we talk about living different experiences. I did a story with a woman who was overweight and she wanted to, um, she wanted to do a letter to fashion designers. I I don't want to say overweight. She was a larger woman than the average woman. And she wanted to do a letter to fashion designers because they don't make clothes in her size. You know, I've been, uh, you know, a size four for most of my life. So I've never really thought about the fact that 
it's really easy for me to get clothes. I just never, I just never thought about it. It's not that I didn't know. It's just not something I thought about, nor did I think about how that affects a woman or how, how it's emotional and how it's upsetting and how it's frustrating and how, how the ripple effect of that, of not having clothes in her size. And not, I didn't even know like, what was the cutoff? Like I had no idea <laughs> because it's just not my experience. But right. when I listened to her, I was like, this shit matters and this is not okay. And this is part of creating a more equal world so that all women can feel empowered and, and it's, it's important and it matters. And I wouldn't have known had I not had that conversation. And those conversations are so important to get us outside the bubble that we live in, no matter who you are, we all live in a bubble because we, we live with our own experiences, what we experience most, our own experiences. So in order to see a world outside of our own, we got to talk to people to realize like, this is not everyone's experience. And I just, I would never have thought about like, Hey, at a size, I think it's a size 12, maybe, or 16, they'd stop making designer. Probably clothes. 16. Yeah. You can get like a 12, even a 14, but once you start to get to like 16 plus, um, it's way more difficult to locate clothes. Like yeah, even actually. like I love express, um, but because of the medication I take for bipolar disorder, I've gained like 50 pounds and express is like my favorite store, but they don't Uh, make like, I mean, express like stops making, like, I think at size 12, like, so that's not okay because you know, people want to have options. They want to feel good. Like when I put on a dress, that makes me feel good. You know, if I have a bad day, I put on a cute dress and it makes me feel good. And and everyone deserves to have that. Right. I mean, and I think you're right. She said 16. Um, and she talked about being a child and, and even as a child, not being able to buy and wear the same clothes that her classmates are wearing. And as a kid, that's a big deal. Yeah. And so you, like, I just learned to be more compassionate of something that I would have never otherwise even thought about because it wasn't my experience. Exactly. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's awesome. And I enjoyed the time with you. Thank you for being a part of the Inspired Women audience. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating review. And don't forget to share this out with somebody who could use some inspiration today. Tag us at Inspired Women Podcast, both on Facebook and Instagram. Have a great day.